Who doesn't like water and the idea of living by the ocean or spending time in the sun? Chances are we'll be rethinking that idea within a few decades, or so the experts predict. Climate change means that hurricanes, storms, heat waves, and heavy rain will present new challenges to communities around the world. Many of the world's cities were never built to cope with these sorts of hazards. Cities like Tokyo, New York, Stockholm, and Singapore are adapting to protect residents and mitigate the increasing effects of a warming planet. You can see this in embankments being built along waterfronts and new measures like cool islands and resilience hubs appearing in more and more places. Since Hurricane Sandy, and even probably more recently, the last three to four years, we've seen customers, partners, designers, the city, the state, all take a real hard look at the problems that we're facing, really taking it seriously, which is great. There is much to learn about climate-resilient cities. How can local communities work together to increase equity and inclusion? Why are partnerships so important? And what are some actionable steps that we can take right now? You know, here in New York City, we're seeing tangible, real-life examples of a move at a structural level. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a podcast from Skanska about climate and the built environment, the ongoing transition in the development and construction industry, and innovative solutions to real problems. In this episode, we're going to look more closely at the challenges facing our cities and what's being done today to prepare and protect them in the future. I'm Madeline Jo Sidulrici. And we'll be starting off in New York City, one of these vulnerable but wonderful coastal giants, loved and fiercely protected by so many. When Hurricane Sandy hit the city on October 29, 2012, heavy rain, wind and water destroyed hundreds of homes, leaving hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers without electricity with damaged critical infrastructure and with limited access to drinking water, food, health care, and other critical services. Sandy inflicted an estimated $19 billion in damages and lost economic activity across New York City. The response was a massive mobilization of the city's workforce, with public services and New Yorkers alike determined to recover and rebuild their homes. This demonstration of resilience led to a pivotal shift in mindset on preparation, city planning, and, not least, construction. Joining us from New York City is Sean Zakowski, Executive Vice President and General Manager for Skanska USA. So, Sean, you were there in October of 2012. You saw Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. Yeah, that was an absolute game-changer for many of us, including me personally, and for New York City at large, and just generally, I think for everybody in the United States and across the world to see what a significant superstorm can do in an area that typically isn't hit by those types of storms in the past. I was the operations manager for Skanska in New York at that time and you know, lost power in my house but drove into the city and it was like a scene from a movie. The city was abandoned and one or two police cars on the streets and I had to walk around the city because uh, there were no cars and mass transit was completely shut down and started seeing the damage that Hurricane Sandy did uh, not just to the Skanska projects we were working on but to the city at large. Some of our largest healthcare clients had, you know, 10 to 12 feet of water in their facilities. Uh, the United Nations was impacted. 
Tons of residents were impacted, uh, and it was a wake-up call. It was uh, one of the most uh, compelling days of my career to say, hey, we're, we're at a point in time where we need to start thinking about things differently. And I think, uh, thankfully, the industry and the public at large has started to take that very seriously. We're going to talk about resilience for a minute, both in how we adapt to reduce our impact on the climate and in how we mitigate to reduce the damage that can come from climate change. How do you approach such huge challenges? Yeah, and I think if, if you break that question into two pieces, you know, how do we adapt to reduce our impact and then how do we mitigate things that could be damaged from the results of climate impacts? Um, the best thing you can do to mitigate the damage is, is to impact to the best that we can our environment and do things uh, in a way that maybe we hadn't done before. If we can solve the bigger problem, you know, the issue of damaging and how do we avoid damages becomes less critical. But I think in both cases, the approach is really the same. I think we need to become, and we are, thankfully, more informed about the challenges. I think we need to communicate to all of the stakeholders who have some say in in how we conduct business moving forward, what those challenges are. We need to educate ourselves and all the stakeholders on what the problem is and how to solve the problem. And if we can get through that big piece of it, which is a monumental task, but that's super important. And then in a more granular way, we then need to really start and we have partnering with key stakeholders in the industry, both city government and national government, private clients, public clients, designers, and other stakeholders, partnering with them. And then as a group, we have to start planning and pre-planning both on the design side of the business and then on the construction side of the business. I think if you can inform, communicate, educate, plan, and partner, the details will come through. You got to start at that high level on your approach, and then you can start jumping into the, the granular details on the nuts and bolts of how you approach it. I think historically, you know, the city in the East Coast has been a little bit slow to adapt to some of the trends in the industry that we've seen on the West Coast and, and overseas. But since Hurricane Sandy, and even probably more recently, the last three to four years, we've seen customers, partners, designers, the city, the state, all take a real hard look at the problems that we're facing, really taking it seriously, which is great. And as a result of, of that awareness from our clients and, and our customers and our other partners in the, in the industry, we're starting to see trends to, you know, how do we move towards a resilient design and resilient building? How do we move to reduce our impact, both embodied carbon and operational carbon impacts uh, on our projects? And not, not just when we build them, but when we're done, how do those buildings operate more efficiently in the future? And we're seeing the industry and, and our clients as a whole really take each of those aspects seriously, and uh, it's making an impact in a good way. And on a more structural level, what specifically is being done today in the built environment to meet these challenges? Well, there certainly is no shortage of examples of projects Skanska's built with significant resiliency features here in New York City. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is a project that we just recently turned over this past week. It's the East Midtown Greenway Project. That project that spans over the East River nine city blocks was specifically built above the 100-year floodplain to protect it from future storm events. At the ends of the esplanade where we dip down to meet the existing esplanade, 
Features were put in place such as planting systems that would be easily replaced and repaired in the event of a storm surge, and our paver systems along the walkway there at the lower levels were set in asphalt instead of sand to create a robust, uh, resilient feature in case of future flooding. Another uh, few examples are Rockaway Boardwalk Project in Queens, New York. There we rebuilt over five miles of boardwalk that was demolished by Hurricane Sandy. When we rebuilt the boardwalk, we put in high resiliency features, you know, uh, steel reinforced pile caps, over 5,000 concrete planks that make up the boardwalk itself, over 1,000 concrete pile caps, and we elevated the boardwalk three feet above the 100-year storm uh, floodplain and incorporated miles of baffle protection systems below grade to protect that boardwalk from being impacted like it was from Hurricane Sandy. At our citywide ferry project where we built over a dozen new ferry landings across the five boroughs, um, we purposely built those landings with a floating barge system that would allow it to um, elevate uh, both up and down depending on storm elevation and storm surge, providing it the flexibility to stand up to future climate impacts. And then last but certainly not least at Public Health Labs, that's a project we're currently constructing. That is a state-of-the-art laboratory uh, critical to the New York City Public Health Labs system. That project specifically being built without a basement to ensure that it's not impacted by local flooding in the event of a big storm event. You know, here in New York City, we're seeing tangible real life examples of, of a move, you know, at a structural level. We're seeing a trend both on the design and the construction side to moving buildings from, you know, materials such as steel and concrete that, you know, have a significant amount of embodied carbon to more sustainable products. Uh, mass timber is one example. We're seeing more mass timber projects uh, coming through the pipeline in the region. And we've seen more of that on the West Coast and overseas, but New York is, is really taking that solution to heart at this point in time. We're seeing the city and the state start to move the industry towards electrification of buildings, you know, to minimize carbon impact on the operational side. And are you seeing an increasing demand from your customers for these types of solutions? Yeah, absolutely. Many of our higher ed uh, clients are at, at the forefront of moving towards sustainable solutions for their universities, and those are usually campus-wide initiatives. Uh, the healthcare industry also moving towards sustainable construction design and uh, operations. And then the city agency, both at the New York City level and the state level, and, and even at the national level with some of the, you know, uh, the renewable energy initiatives that are out there, we're seeing them move in that direction. We've seen the property-related and infrastructural damage that climate change can cause, but it can also bring enormous economic consequences, and insurance is a vital consideration. Our next guest, Philip Thorne, head of sustainability with insurance company IF, has been working with these issues for a long time. He's even helped initiate a new research project on the climate adaptation of residences led by Cicero, the Center for International Climate Research, in collaboration with the IVL Swedish Environmental Institute. Philip, welcome to Shaping Sustainable Places. Thank you very much. 
So how can climate change-related challenges be met when it comes to preparation and resilience in these particularly vulnerable areas of the world? Well, first of all, the world needs to step up its efforts when it comes to climate change mitigation. That's the first part. But then we must also work on climate change adaptation, active measures to reduce risk from flooding, landslides, etc., reducing vulnerability. And here it's, uh, it needs to be efforts on, on different levels. In a Nordic context, the uh, municipalities are, are central. They provide uh, building permits. Uh, they are responsible for sewage systems, rescue services, etc. So they have a central role in this. And then also from our end, uh, we um, support our customers with loss prevention uh, services, which is also very important here in this context. House assessments. We um, go through your house and uh, give you recommendations, suggestions on loss prevention measures and uh, maintenance, what to do for the next coming four uh, years to reduce uh, risk for damage. And part of this is linked to climate change adaptation, making sure that uh, your roof has good quality, for example. That can reduce the, the risk of damage if, you have a, if there's a heavy rain or a cloudburst, for example. And I think we'll see more of that going forward, uh, an increased demand for that type of, of services. If you would compare the housing insurances on offer in the Nordics with those in the rest of the world, what would that look like? From a global perspective, one talks about NATCAT, natural catastrophe and protection gap. By that meaning that there's a difference between the total cost from extreme weather events and how much of those damages are insured. And uh, there are big differences here. In some developing countries, the, the gap is almost 100%, meaning that there's no protection at all. In different regions and countries in North America and Europe, the, the gap is like 30 to 40%. In the Nordics, we have a very good protection currently. It's a standard insurance, you have a very good protection uh, against uh, natural hazards. This is the kind of standard uh, solution on, on the Nordic markets. And this is due to the fact also that, well, that we can offer this, is that, that compared to, to other parts of the world, the risks are relatively low. There are other parts of the world where uh, the risk for natural hazards are much, much uh, higher. Exactly. And in many parts of the world, we're already seeing homeowners in exposed areas stuck with so-called stranded assets where they cannot get insurance for their homes. And if they want to move, they can't sell because obviously nobody wants to buy a property without insurance. The areas were safe when they were built, but they're not anymore. We don't have that situation in the Nordics, uh, but what we can see also, and which is worrying, is that if you have a 30-year perspective, uh, we can see that the cost for extreme weather events, it varies a lot between years, but the, the underlying trends, the risks are uh, increasing. And that's, of course, uh, worrying. In the Nordics, we can see from, uh, from recent uh, studies that Many municipalities have a much, a much work to do when it comes to climate change adaptation. So I think it's, um, it's very important that adaptation is on the political agenda and that the uh, municipalities in the Nordics, they, they step up their work. What would be the business perspective of these issues? It's the same for, for businesses as for private citizens, so to say. We also support business uh, customers, our corporate clients, with loss prevention 
for our industrial clients, our uh, major corporate clients with uh, I mean, global operations, we, we offer something called risk management services, analysis and mapping and recommendation on, on measures. But also during an event, if there's a tornado or a tsunami or an earthquake, we um, support our industrial clients during the events and, of course, also after the event. So you are based yourself in Stockholm, Sweden. What cities in this part of the world that is northern Europe are in the danger zone for changing weather conditions? One usually makes a distinction between so-called acute risks and chronic. Acute uh, being cloudburst, heatway, something which happens abruptly. And then a uh, chronicle is, well, sea level rise. It doesn't happen overnight, but it has big impact over time. And uh, sea level rise, for example, for obvious reason, it's coastal cities who are more vulnerable for, for that type of uh, risks. Um, when it comes to landslides, for example, you can see it's certain areas in, in Sweden which are more vulnerable than others. For example, western parts, already in the current climate, more vulnerable for, for landslides, for example. But it's, it, it's important to bear in mind that some of these acute events, cloudbursts, heat waves, that can affect any city. So all uh, municipalities need to prepare and start working on climate change adaptation. S- since many of these uh, extreme weather events and natural hazards, they, they, they can affect any part. Now, even an insurance company needs some kind of insurance. Can we briefly talk about reinsurance and what exactly that is and how it works? Basically, reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies. So as a customer, you buy insurance from an insurance company. And then we, as an insurance company, we have a portfolio of, say, private customers, property insurance. And we then buy insurance for that portfolio from a reinsurance company. And um, in the Nordics, we have a good coverage against natural hazards. And compared to other parts of the world, the, the risks are relatively low. And that's why it's not a problem to buy reinsurance. And of course, we want to want to keep it that way. Obviously, in other parts of the world, we've seen that some reinsurers are withdrawing from high-risk areas. How would you, as an IF member, handle this if Sweden were to turn out that way? I think that's why we put a lot of efforts into communicating PR and public affairs. You know, we want this to be on the political agenda, the, the need for climate change adaptation. It's central that that climate change adaptation is on the agenda, that uh, measures are being uh, implemented. That's a very central message that we're communicating. And I think it's important here to mention that climate change adaptation measures, many of these measures are, so to say, win-win or low regret, meaning that they have multiple benefits. Green spaces in cities, that's a good example of a win-win solution. On the one hand, it's a it's a, par- a beautiful park, recreational area, appreciated uh, by citizens, of course. But then it also reduces the risk for flooding, right? If there's a heavy rain, green spaces absorb water. So one needs to, to be a bit innovative and think, okay, how can, can we identify that type of win-win or low regret, meaning that uh, this makes sense already in, in the current climate with current risks. But in order to do that, in order to identify these type of measures, you need to start working. You need to be inspired, see what others are doing, and uh, and uh, start planning. 
good news is we, you know, uh, both uh, globally, nationally, and now locally, we've got a lot of experience putting together sustainable solutions. Back to New York and Sean Zakowski, where he explains how Skanska is building on the lessons it's learned working with resilience. You can break it down into a couple different buckets. You know, the experience that we bring to the table, the lessons that we've learned on resiliency projects that we've already built across the globe, the fact that we've got significant experience in pre-planning, you know, through the different uh, parts of our organization, whether it's in pre-construction planning or operations, we can bring that pre-planning experience and the lessons learned that we've had on other projects and implementing other solutions to our clients. And our clients are responding to that, and it's great. We have a self-perform group here at Skanska Civil in New York that's got extensive experience, uh, not just managing work, but actually performing the work. Uh, And that experience is from the resiliency perspective and the hardening perspective to protect the cities and the industries that we're not just working in, but we also live here. Our self-perform group has uh, a great ability to mitigate risks as, uh, as we self-perform that work. On the building side, we've had a significant amount of resilient infrastructure experience that we can bring to the table. And, you know, also beyond infrastructure resiliency, we also have the ability to bring the experience of high-efficiency building construction that we've been a part of both on the construction and design management side Because, as I said earlier, the industry is starting to move to electrification. The industry is starting to move towards ensuring that buildings are more efficient with their envelope construction. One last question for you. What are your hopes for the future? I am more than hopeful at this point in my career. I'm very bullish on the fact that, you know, all stakeholders in the industry have recognized that uh, that we have challenges when it comes to climate and resiliency. And there is a vigorous effort in the industry to get ahead of that problem. And I see competitors uh, working together to come up with solutions. I see industry partners coming together to work towards uh, sustainable solutions. And I see an energy and level of effort that for me, makes me sleep a little bit better. I have a, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home, hope and faith. And, uh, you know, when I'm done in my career, I hope to have made a positive impact uh, in this arena. And I think the industry is, is rallying to the need. So, uh, so I look forward to seeing what we can do in the future here in New York. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our guests, Sean Zakowski at Skanska USA and Philip Thorne at the insurance company IF for joining us today on Shaping Sustainable Places. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out in the future. If you have any thoughts about this episode or ideas for new ones to come, don't hesitate to reach out to podcast at skanska.com. We'd love to hear from you. This is a podcast from Skanska, a leading property development and construction group. To find out more about how we and others are creating healthy, resilient communities and spaces, visit us at foresight.skanska.com. I'm Madeline Jostadulrici. Thank you for joining us as we explore shaping sustainable places. Thank you.